Turn with us, if you would, back to the letter of 1 Timothy. We're going to continue our study here in 1 Timothy this morning. We'll be in chapter 1, verses 12 down through 17. As we look at this this morning, as I was thinking through this this week, uh, you get a great example here this morning of what we call exposition, expositional teaching or expositional preaching, uh, where there is something in view uh, that God has done or that God has revealed to us, which for us, right, always is uh, Scripture. Now, here Paul is thinking through uh, the gospel and the truths of the gospel as they landed in his life, and so he's thinking of the confluence there, the coming together of what is true about who God is and what he's revealed of himself and when that came to bear on his life. And so he's thinking not just about the gospel, but when he put his faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. So something God has revealed. It was a moment for Paul of true revealing. If you remember on the Damascus Road where he saw the Savior face to face and spoke with him there. And so it was a moment of revelation for Paul in a, in a unique way. Uh, and then he, he not only reflects on that but, or remembers that, but then he reflects on it uh, and the significance of it, and he states some always eternal, uh, eternally true principles. And that's what, when we go to Scripture and we study out what Scripture says, what we want to take from it uh, as we understand what it says is the truth, the eternal truth that it's communicating. Right? Because that truth from that text was true when that text was being communicated by God. And that truth is still true today because God's truth never changes. And so when we read, when we study Scripture, we want to find in that text doctrine, truth that's always true. And then once we have that, we can make application today. And that's what you see Paul doing this morning, verses 12 through 17. Uh, He's been talking about truth and the gospel already, and so that's in the context for us. Uh, And he's going to remember the gospel, and then he's going to reflect on the gospel and those eternal truths, what's true about it. And then he's going to uh, make application from that. And so um, the retelling of the gospel. And so that's kind of our outline this morning together as we walk through this, remembering and then reflecting and then retelling the gospel, right? And so we're this morning, verses 12 through 17, uh, we're looking at how we persevere in faith through gospel testimony, how we persevere in the faith through gospel testimony. So just a quick reminder or two as we drop back in here at verse 12 this morning. Remember Paul's concern, overarching concern, one of the major overarching concerns of Paul in this letter is that we persevere in the faith, that persevering in the faith is a mark of true conversion. He hasn't got to the place where he just illumines that for us directly, but it's coming soon. Right, And so his concern in writing this letter to Timothy, who he has left as a elder to instruct and to command uh, certain men who are teaching in the church in Ephesus. Uh, he's written it to Timothy, but it, it's about the church. 
and what's to be true in the church. And it's so that we foster and protect and promote persevering faith in the lives of believers. Uh, And so Paul has spent some time here in the first, in the opening verses. Um, Secondly, by way of reminder, just looking at doctrine and the role of doctrine. Uh, And so we, uh, through doctrine, Paul says, we know and begin to walk in the love of God. Remember chapter 1, verse 5, the goal of our instruction. And that instruction is the truths of Scripture. It's the doctrines of Scripture. It's things that never change. The goal of those is not what we're seeing in this church. It's not speculation. It's not running to myths and genealogies and ending up uh, things that end up in just speculative places, right? It's the truths of the gospel that end up in love, the love of God being known more deeply and more widely in our own lives, in our own hearts, and the love of God being uh, walked in by us, that we love others the way God has loved us and the way He has loved others. And so it is uh, vital in the life of the church that we preach, that we teach, that we share the gospel constantly with one another. The gospel is the foundation. It's the bedrock all the time for our theology. And it's the foundation and the bedrock all the time for us sharing life together. That we think in gospel categories and we use gospel language. Think about the holiness of God. We think about my wrestling with sin and what Christ has done to overcome that for me so that I I can rest in that, trust in it, so that I can walk in it. There's no other way for us to know, not just objectively, but subjectively, the freedom we have from sin in Jesus Christ, except that we are just steeped in and foundationed on and standing firmly and rooted in truths of the gospel. And so we we must always preach and teach with that at the core of what we're teaching. And so we end verse 11 there. We, we didn't pick up on the very end there and really maybe much of verse 11 at all. We used it a little bit to begin last week, but we came back to this place where Paul says here, right, that uh, we, we teach things that are in keeping with sound teaching that are, verse 11, according to the glorious gospel of the blessed God or the gospel of the glory of God, right? The gospel in which we know the, the glorious truths of who God is. And, and we, we can investigate infinitely God's goodness and his holiness and his justice and his wrath for sin and his mercy and his grace and the fact that he has provided for our redemption graciously and that he's also justifier even while he's just, right? This gospel that makes known the glories of God. He says, with which I have been entrusted. And if you're sitting back ever and you're thinking about the gospel and you're thinking about who 
God is as we know Him in Scripture. And if you're thinking honestly and lucidly, right, openly and transparently about who you are, the fact that the gospel has been made known to us, just again, new, newly, just astounds you. It just amazes you. And God's grace, again, is amazing grace to us. It's infinite love to us. And that's where Paul is right here as he, uh, you know, is talking about gospel-rich, gospel-centered teaching, this glorious gospel that makes known the glory of God to us with which I have been entrusted. And you just feel him set back in amazement again. In verse 12 to 17, he gives his own gospel testimony. He gives his gospel testimony. Where, where he was, where he is now, and how that changed occurred. That's, that's just a, a, a normal testimony for us, right? If we want to tell somebody what happened to us, they say, I haven't seen you in 20 years. What happened to you? You know, let me tell you about that. What happened to me? You know, or you just recently put your faith in Christ and someone now everybody wants to know what happened to you. Right. Well, let me tell you what happened to you. And so Paul begins by just remembering what happened to him. And as he does that, he starts and we'll start with who he was. Let's read this text and then we're going to take it a little bit out of order here, but we'll take it all the way through. He says, I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, this gospel with which I've been entrusted makes him think about himself here. I thank Christ Jesus, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. Yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which were found in Jesus Christ. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet... For this reason, I found mercy so that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. So verses there. Uh, 12 through 14 is Paul's remembering the gospel, remembering the gospel. And so as we look at that, let's start first with Paul's description of who he was right there in verse 13. I was formerly, this is who I was. I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. I was, he says, a blasphemer, somebody who speaks of God in a way that slanders and denigrates and defames the name of God. That's 
essentially what blasphemy is and then what being a blasphemer is. That he spoke out against God in such a way as to defame God, to deny God, to denigrate the name of God, the work of God, that he was a slanderer. He was denying God himself and his truth and his work, right? And all of those things hold together, don't they? God who is who he is in his nature. When he speaks, he speaks truly. And that which he speaks is true and it's truth because it's in keeping with a God who is true and never changes. And then he works and his work is in keeping with what he said is true and will be true and in keeping with his nature. And so you can't deny any one of those without denying all of it. So the very fact that Paul would come against the church was a denial of the work of God. And that's also then a denial of the word of God. And it's a denial of God himself. And so he says he is a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. So we know, uh, even as Paul says, I was a persecutor, we know who he was. There's been a movie or two out recently about Paul, right? Maybe another one coming. All of a sudden, Paul's a real popular guy to write movies about. And we know the Paul story fairly well, right? Trained as a rabbi and a teacher of the law. And yet, for some reason, as the church comes into being, as he sees the church, he doesn't recognize in that the work of God in fulfilling his promises. And so he comes against the church to persecute the church. And he does it violently. And so we find uh, in Acts 9, verse 1, that he's breathing threats and murder versus against the disciples of the Lord. If you back up in Acts chapter 8, verse 3, he's entering from house to house and he's dragging people out to prison. And later on in that chapter, we find him standing there famously, right, holding robes while others he's incited uh, are stoning to death Stephen. And there's the first martyr of the church. And Paul is behind that. And it says there arose a great persecution there in the church in Jerusalem because of Paul leading the way on that. He's persecuting God's people. He's working against the work that God's doing. And God recognizes that not just to be a persecution of his own people and not just to be a working against what he's doing, but that to be a persecution that's directed against God himself, right? You remember when Paul meets Christ on the Damascus road, what it is that Christ says to Paul? Paul, why do you what? Persecute the church. No. Why do you persecute me? That you're persecuting and your violence against the church is directed ultimately against me. And we're reminded again that when we sin, our sin may have devastating results in the lives of others, but our sin is primarily a sin against and before and to God himself. 
And so Paul calls himself, I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was a violent aggressor. There's a sad irony in that. Whether you take it uh, from, say, the persecuting and the aggression, right, where he's persecuting not only the church and Christ, and then also he's aggressive against the church, God's people, or whether uh, you take it from the fact that he's blaspheming God, and as he's doing that, he's a persecutor and an aggressor. You can't get away from the fact that Paul trained up as a rabbi, trained up in the law, and somebody that as he writes what he writes throughout the rest of the New Testament shows an absolute mastery of understanding Old Testament scripture. It is a sad irony that in his seeking to uphold the law of God, he so clearly contravenes it. Uh, It's been observed in this text and commentaries that if you go back to just the core of God's law, the Ten Commandments, and those first four commandments being about our rightly relating to the God of creation and the God of heaven, that you shall have no other gods before me, you shall not make idols, you'll not take my name in vain, you'll remember and keep the Sabbath. That Paul was, by blaspheming God, by persecuting Christ through his persecution of the church, negating those laws. And then surely it's easy to see how as he pulls people from houses, that he's doing pretty much all the right, he's lying, he's stealing, he's killing, right? That he is not relating to others the way God would call us to interact and relate to others. There's no love for God there, and there's no love for men there. And the the sad irony that Paul's trying to uphold the law of God, but he did anything but do that, right? And so that's who Paul was. It's so easy, isn't it, to look at Paul in that part of his life and go, "Woo! glad that wasn't me, right? I mean, I grew up in the church, and it took me a while. I was 10, or I was 12, or I was 18, but I heard the gospel a thousand and one times if I heard it once. And, uh, you know, and then I, one day, it just in this moment, in these circumstances, in this scripture, and that statement by somebody, it, it made sense to me, and it all came together, and I understood my sin to be sin against God, and I bowed my heart, and I put my faith in Christ, and I asked forgiveness, and I made him, asked him to be my Savior, and he's my Lord. He's the Lord of my life, and I've been walking with him ever since. For so many of us, that may be our testimony that we share. Not for all of us. Some of us, you know, came to Christ later in life and we may identify more with Paul in terms of I spent years philosophically arguing with Christians and saying that it was all irrational and ignorant. And I can see clearly how I blasphemed the name of God and was against the church and against his people. But we don't want, we want to be careful even, uh, if we grew up in the church and we grew up in a Christian home, not to minimize what Paul's saying here too much, we're meant to identify with him there, right? That even as children were born, how, Scripture says? In depravity, 
We love when we hold them for the first time to look at them and go, man, and we see innocence. Doesn't take a whole long for that to go away, does it? Right? That goes away real quickly. And you can see it's just a raw bundle of exposed self, right? And that it's just me all the time. I need food. I need sleep. I need a new diaper. I want a hug. And if I don't get any of those, I'm going to scream my head off until I get them from you, right? It's all me. There, there never was innocence there. You don't have to teach our little toddlers to be selfish, and that's my toy, and no one else can have that toy. And as soon as someone looks at that toy, they toddle over and fall and pick it up. And they're, you know, you don't have to teach selfishness and depravity. Even as little children, even as little children, even if we came to Christ early in our lives, we still had in us that denial of who God is and the rejection of him in favor of ourself. We still had in us an unwillingness to love others unselfishly. And in that manifestation, at that level, at that age, there's still in that a blasphemy of who God is and a denial of who he is. There's a lack of love for the Lord and a lack of love for others. And to deny that, even of our precious little children, is to deny truths that are foundational truths from Scripture and foundational to the gospel. It's not that we were born innocent and righteous and lost it. We never were. We always needed a Savior. And so you don't want to minimize, even as Paul's walking through his life, don't minimize it and say, thank goodness that wasn't me, because it was me. And if you're here today and you're in Christ, it was you. So you don't want to minimize it. You also, you don't want to relativize it, I don't think, and by that I mean uh, a little bit of what we're already poking at. I'm looking at Paul uh, we don't want to minimize it within ourselves. You don't want to relativize it by comparing it to anybody else. That's, that's really never a good thing to do, right? Because we're always efforting to make ourselves feel better about something when we're doing that, usually. Uh, you also don't want to internalize it so much. It's not meant for you to look at it and say, oh, like you are meant to say and realize your sinfulness and the depth Depravity, but you're not supposed to take it and start bludgeoning or whipping yourself with it. It's not meant for that, and some of us are prone to that, but it's not meant for that. We are just simply to remember and to realize who we were as blasphemers and deniers of who God was and what he's doing and what he's done for us through Christ and what he's offered. And so Paul begins there who he was as he's remembering the gospel. Then he talks about uh, uh, who he is now. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, and that's a a continual present verb. I'm always thankful, he says. I'm thankful now, and I continue to be, and I always will be thankful that I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me 
because he considered me faithful and putting me into service. That when he was met by Christ on the Damascus Road and he realized that he was persecuting Christ and that Christ, the Christ he was persecuting, was the Lord of heaven in reality and Messiah. That in that moment of insight and the gift of faith from God and him putting his faith in Christ, in that very moment, this looks back to that very moment that God strengthened me. It's tempting with this letter uh, to look at it as just God has strengthened him in his recent imprisonment. And from this, it would still be true that God strengthened him then there too. The, the verb tense of strengthened and considered me faithful and putting me into service is just looking at the fact of what God has done. But the putting me into service takes us all the way back to the beginning. Because the moment that God called Paul into faith, he also called Paul into apostleship. And that was his service. And so God, by his grace, when he was confronted by Christ, God strengthened him. It's a great reminder. When we're tired, when we're exhausted, when we're worn out by life and the pains of life, and there's no work that we can accomplish to stay faithful or to feel healthy spiritually. You're always resting on what God is doing in you through Christ. God strengthens us by his grace to us through Jesus Christ and what he's done for us. This is an inward spiritual strengthening. Uh, Romans 5, 1 to 2, Paul talks about it this way there. Therefore, having been justified by faith, right, that would talk about the moment of putting our faith in Christ. We have peace then with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, he said, through whom we also have obtained our introduction by faith into, catch this, this grace in which we stand. And that takes the grace of God to us in Christ. It makes it both the moment of our justification when we put our faith in Christ and God says you're no longer guilty of sin, but now you're innocent because I have poured out my wrath on your sin in Christ. It also makes it that in which we continue. It's what we stand in still. This grace in which we stand now today. This strengthening of God as we continue to recognize and put to death sin in our life, it's still something God's working in us today. And so this strengthening, Paul says, he strengthened me. He strengthened me because he considered me faithful. And realize if you go all the way back to the beginning, there was what? In Paul, for God to consider him faithful, the word here really is trustworthy. What was there of Paul to be considered trustworthy? He'd done a great job, I guess, at sticking to uh, his rebellion of God, right? He was dogged in his pursuit of Christians. He was zealous in his efforts to put them to death, right? Uh, that God considered him trustworthy. And there's nothing there at the beginning. Paul 
his eyes are affected. He has to go see Ananias there in Damascus and his eyes are healed. And immediately he's preaching and teaching in synagogues and he's going to see uh, the apostles in Jerusalem and he's off. I mean, he's immediately put into service by God. And so God considers him trustworthy, not because of anything in Paul at all, but simply because God's God has set his choice on him and God has called him into service. And because it's God's power at work in him and it's not Paul's, because of that, God can consider him trustworthy. How often do we get after ourselves, after a sin, a besetting sin, a sin we struggle with, and we just listen to the lie of the enemy Tell us, you can't go do any ministry today. You can't talk about Jesus today. You can't share your faith with anyone today, you scrub, right? Y'all know that in your head. It has nothing to do with your performance. That's a works-based walk of life. You're basing your opportunities for ministry that day on who you are and what you've done. You're going you're gonna to mess up. But when you do, and when you've gone in repentance to God, you get up and walk in newness of life. And now you know and remember, we don't sin all the more that God's grace will abound. But when we do sin, we find God's mercies are new. And you know the gospel again, richly. And you know God's grace again. And you go tell others what God's accomplishing and what God's accomplished in your life. You don't let that stop you. God has considered you trustworthy. You know how we know? Because you're his child. He set his choice on you and he called you in Christ and you now know the gospel. And that's been entrusted to you too. Paul says he put me in to service. It's interesting. He could have used, he could have said here, he made me an apostle, right? He could have kind of set himself apart from everybody and, and said, he called me into this wonderful, this great service. I'm one of the apostles of Christ to underscore the richness of God's grace to him. But Paul carefully, I think, says instead into service. And it's the same word and usage and meaning that we would take from Ephesians 4.12, right? That the elders in the church are to equip the saints, believers, members of a church for the work of ministry or service, diaconia, that we get the word deacon from. It's a work of service. Paul sees his apostleship and what he's been called to as simply his expression of the service that he's been called to in Jesus Christ. But he uses service because we've all been called into service in Jesus Christ, haven't we? All of us have received a gift of God's grace that's for the building up and equipping of the body, spiritual gifts from the Spirit to be used as we live and move and have fellowship within the church to be used in ministering the gospel to one another and to others. We all, God will put uh, by his spirit on our heart, individuals, people, issues in our community, 
certain demographics, and God will give us a vision, an understanding, and an unction in our heart, and just a burden to go minister the gospel in those places within the church, without the church. We've all been put into service. Why? Because we're all disciples of Christ, aren't we? We all are to be his witnesses, wherever you are. We are all to go make disciples. That Jesus, when he sent his disciples and when he prayed for his disciples, he didn't just pray for the apostles, but he said there, John 17, I pray for every one of them that comes after him, all of them that come through him. That's you and that's me. And so who he was as a blasphemer, now this is who he is as one who worships and serves God. This is who we are, God's work of grace in us. Rebellion to repentance, blasphemy to worship. And we are his humble servants. And how did that happen? That was uh, the source. What's the source of that change in him? The end of verse 13, I was shown mercy. It was the mercy of God. And catch this, he says, because I was ignorant, and that's an interesting thing to talk in there. He could have just said I was shown mercy. But there is the issue in this letter of persevering faith. And he's about to get to a couple of guys at the end of this chapter, Hymenaeus and Alexander, right? Who have been handed over to Satan, he says, to be taught not to blaspheme. And so he's throwing this little phrase in there. I was ignorant. I had no idea. I just, I wasn't seeing, I didn't understand who God was, his promise, how that had been fulfilled in Christ, how that results in a church now that's proclaiming a gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. I, I stood against all of that because I, I didn't understand it. It's not an excuse. I was still a blasphemer. But I was ignorant. The scripture tells us very clearly it is a dangerous, the most dangerous place to be, to have been a part of the life of the church, to have tasted, to have heard, to have touched, to have seen the gospel, and in effect to have seen Jesus Christ himself through the life of the church, and then to have hardened your heart and departed from the church. Hebrews talks about that being almost impossible for someone to return or to repent from. It is difficult because of the hardening that takes place there, right? It's very hard there. Nothing's impossible with our Lord, but that's harder. And that's a dangerous place to be than it is simply to be ignorant, right, of the truths of Scripture. It was God's mercy to me. And the grace of our Lord, he says, was more than abundant with the faith and love which are in Jesus Christ. The grace of our Lord was hooper abundant, hyper abundant, over abundant. God's grace to me was amazing, rich, full, infinite grace to me. That every time you could protest, but what about this? But what about this? But what, what, what about this? What about this I said? What about this I did? Right? That God's grace was there washing away all of that. It was abounding to me, some 
translations would say there. It was more than abundant. And it was abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Now hang on always to chapter 1, verse 5. The goal of our instruction, our doctrine is love. Love for God and love for others that is the love of God in us. That you can't separate those two things. That here God's grace was abundant abundant and full to me with faith and love that are found in Christ. That faith here, I think, is it's subjective faith. We're not talking about doctrine yet. It's faith, my putting my trust and entrusting myself to Christ. But when I have put my faith in Christ and entrust myself to Christ, there's certain truths in view there that he's God that he's Messiah, that he's Savior, that he's righteous, that he's died in my place for my sins, that he's the Redeemer, that he's atoned for me, he's the propitiation, all the gospel truths. By putting my faith and trust in Christ, I'm also saying amen to all that objective truth and doctrine. Faith, my faith in Christ, that was found from Christ. It comes to me by God's grace he says here, and love. I know the love of God because I see it made known to me in Jesus. And I know the love of God and had and love God because that's been made available to me in Christ Jesus. And so that's how he changed. It's because of what Christ has done. It's because of who God is. It's because of mercy and the grace of God. That's the source of our change. So that's him remembering the gospel, who he was, who he is, how he changed. And then real quickly, then it reflects upon it now. So it's a true and trustworthy statement then, verse 15 and 16. As I think about these truths involved and what Christ has done in me and who Christ is, there is something that is always true. It's a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. You can go to the bank with this one. That's what Paul's saying, right? That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's the first statement. We know that one to be true. When the angel talks to Joseph, this child is going to save his people from their sins, right? Uh, Luke 19, the Son of Man, verse 10, came to do what? Seek and save that which was lost. That uh, John 3, not 16, verse 17, for God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. How often do we see the gospel today and the effects that are to come from Christ coming to save get confused with the purpose, right? In other words, that that Jesus Christ came to affect social reform. That's a very popular one in our day, that things would change culturally. That's an effect that comes out of the gospel. There are certain things that happen in a culture that have put their faith in Christ, There's a certain diversity and a unity within diversity. There's progress that has occurred historically, right? Uh, There's prosperity that has just happened of necessity. There's a certain equality and a, a drive for equality. 
that has come out of the gospel being in cultures, but all of those are effects that come from the gospel. Jesus Christ came into the world first to glorify his Father by way of saving sinners. And that's why he came. Right? That's, you can, that's just true. And so Paul would say, even such a one as I. Even such a one as I. Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am what? The foremost of all. Whoa. This is the, I love this kind of trajectory in Paul's thought. 1 Corinthians 15, 9 to 10. He says there, I'm the least of all the apostles. Well, how humble of you, Paul. Right? You chose uh, 12 or 13 of you guys and said, well, I'm the least of the apostles. So I'm the worst one in the room and we 12 get together. But I might be, might not be the worst if it was all of us. And, you know, he leaves room there. I'm the least of the apostles, 1 Corinthians 15. Later in Ephesians 3, and this is later in his life. Right, that's a prison epistle. While he's in prison, he says, I'm the least of the saints, chapter 3, verse 8 in Ephesians. So now we widen the circle. Oh, I, I'm understanding the gospel in such a way now that I understand I'm not just the least of the apostles. I'm the least of all believers, of all the saints in the church and all those who know Christ. I'm the least of them. And then you get here. I'm not just the least of those Christ has saved. I'm the worst of the sinners. I'm the worst one. But that's what happens as we grow in our knowledge of God and his mercy and the gospel to us. We have a deepening sense of our own sin, right? We so often will avoid that because we don't like it. We don't like it. We don't like the shame, the guilt that comes with it. But that's the place to which we know the mercy and the grace of God. We realize more his holiness. That tells us more our sinfulness. And then we realize the depth and the breadth of his mercy to us. And we all at some point would say, I'm the chief of sinners, right? You didn't do what Paul did. I didn't do what Paul did, right? Uh, Sin is sin, but there's also the fact that sin differentiates in terms of the seriousness of sin. We've, We've all been, well, all haven't, been and done. We haven't been the same person. We haven't done the same things, right? It's like when you're talking to someone about pain and they, someone will always say, while I hurt right now, but I know there's someone who has it worse than me and I shouldn't feel this way because of it. But that's the worst you've ever felt. That's the most awful pain you've ever known. And so to you, it's, it's everything in that moment. It hurts the worst of anything you've ever felt. And It's like this as we come to know the gospel more. We shy away from sensing the infinity of our offense against God. But if we'll turn, accept that, and then turn, we constantly see Jesus there waiting on us, forgiving us. And so he's reflecting on that. It's a trustworthy statement. Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I'm the worst. And it's for this reason. Here's another truth that I found mercy. So that in me as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience 
as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. His perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. That, that by saving me, even me, Paul, God has said he can save you too. Right? That no one is exempt from deliverance from sin who would put their faith in Christ who had no truths about him and then put their faith in him. Everybody who comes to know Christ truly, put their faith in Christ, is saved and delivered in him. And what God's done in me, he's done for the benefit of others. I'm an example, a pattern. Uses the word in there of typology. I'm a picture of God's grace that other people can see and read that book and hear that story and know exactly what God can do and what God will do. That my salvation is not just for me, but it's for others, he says. And so that's the the retelling then comes in there. He's remembered the gospel. He's reflected on it. Christ, the truth is, comes to save sinners. Even me, right? That's the reflecting and then the retelling. It's not just for me, it's for others, that others would know the gospel. And then you get the result, ultimately, that always should come out of remembering the gospel and sharing testimony of God's grace, which is worship. Now to the King Eternal, God who is Alpha and Omega and never changes. What was true of me will be true of you, and it's not going to change between today and tomorrow. You can go away and think about it, but you need, you need to think about it. But God's eternal. He never changes. So what I'm telling you about the gospel and what it has happened in my life, it can happen in yours. He's eternal. He's immortal. He's, uh, he's without change at all. He always is who he is. He's invisible. There's, we can't set him right down in front of you today. I can't go, here's God, right? And so you have to come to know him based upon doctrine, truths, that he's made known of himself in Scripture and his revelation of himself through his Son. He's invisible, but he's the only God and he's worthy of honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And what I find tremendously uh, beautiful about this, as you tell others, as others hear about the gospel in your life, and as they believe at the end of verse 16, that worships not just me worshiping, but it's now me with someone else that has put their faith in Christ. It's us together. And it's the worship of God's people. And this is just the beginning of our worship here on earth. That's something that will continue into infinity and into eternity. And so God gathers his people together on the basis of the gospel. We persevere in the faith and we worship him today and tomorrow and forever. He's worthy of honor and glory forever ever and all God's people say together amen so the music team will come father we thank you for your word and its truths and God for just this great reminder here uh, that a part of our life in Christ together is the sharing of the gospel and the remembering we were and remembering now who we are 
and that it was your mercy and your grace abundant that affected that change in us. And God, that with that, that, that we recognize we haven't been completely delivered from sin. And so there's even testimony that we can give, not just of our coming and putting our faith in Christ whenever that happened years ago, but this week, how is it now today that, that your grace is at work in me to free me from the powerful presence of sin in my life? I've been freed from the slavery to sin, but in what ways today is your grace still abundant to me? In what ways today am I obedient and your servant and being changed by your grace to be more obediently your servant, that you're delivering me still, God, from the effect and the presence of sin in my life, that there's still a gospel at work in me. That's what we share together as we fellowship in the life of the church. And it's those things that underscore the bigger story of the gospel. And when that happened, and I put my faith in Christ, is that there's still a real working of your grace and mercy in me today and now that we're still growing in Christ as his people. And so, Lord, might your gospel being remembered and being reflected on and then being retold result in us and have its result in us of worship together. And with those, Father, who are brand new to the faith, God, we desire to see our church grow and to grow because of new professions and new conversions. People new in Christ. God, might we be a people that is on the way making disciples as you've called us to do, Lord. And then teaching your truths and all that you've commanded us. Let us go walk in your truths. In Jesus' name, amen.